All right, guys, we are almost done talking about covenants. Let me just recap what we've been doing this semester. First, we talked about humanity. What does it mean to be human? We talked about that. We talked about uh, the value that humans have, that we are the greatest thing that God has made. Uh, Dogs are great. They uh, can sniff out drugs and these kind of things. Dolphins are awesome. They do flips in the water, but they don't get together and confess sins and worship and play the trumpet and these kind of things like people do. So we are are better because of that. We talked about the doctrine of humanity, what's called anthropology, Uh, not the the hip uh, ladies clothing store, but rather the doctrine of humanity. Then we talked about hamartiology, which is the doctrine of hamartia, which is sin. And uh, we talked about mankind was created good, but we fell because of sin. We rejected God. We uh, decided we would try to be our own gods, uh, that we would be like God deciding good and evil, and uh, everything became broken. And so we talked about what is sin? What is this corruption? How are we affected by it? We talked about what's natural today is not what's always been natural. We live post Genesis 3. Uh, We focused on some particular sins, just some things going on in our culture. That's why we did that, not because those sins are uh, the worst of all sins or something like that, but we... uh So often, churches have been about 10 to 15 years behind the culture. We're just trying not to do that at Parkway the best we can, okay? So I'm trying to look in the future and see what's going on 15 years from now, but I'm having trouble with that. But then we talked about, so there's mankind, and then mankind fell, and then we talked about, okay, what is the solution to that? So we started talking about uh, soteriology. The Greek word soteria means salvation. The Greek word soter means savior. And uh, so we started talking about God's remedy to this fall of mankind, soteriology. And what we said is this, God's plan the way that God fixes things, the way that God restores his kingdom is through making covenants. We have no claim on God. We have no right to God. Sinners don't get to go up to the infinite, all-powerful, Trinitarian God of the universe and say, why don't you save me? You owe me salvation. No, God created us. We rebelled. That could have been the end of the story, but because God is gracious, because God loves people, he has provided a way of salvation. And so what he does is he enters into relationships with humanity, and we call these relationships covenants. Okay? There's a bunch of covenants in the Bible. Every time somebody gets married, in fact, that would be a covenant. But there are six big covenants mentioned in the Bible of where God makes kind of this, uh, this uh, agreement with mankind. We talked about Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and then today we'll talk about the last one here before we get to the new covenant. And then when we talk about the new covenant for the rest of the semester, we're going to be talking about the central figure of the new, t- new covenant, who is... Jesus, right, good. That's a good church answer. Anytime, if the uh, pastor asks, just yell out Jesus. Unless he asks something like, who's super sinful? Then that would not be the right answer. Uh, But we'll be talking about Christ for the rest of the semester. We'll be talking about what he does in his life, what he does in his death. We'll be talking about atonement. We'll be talking about resurrection. Uh, All these kind of things. Because the covenant to rule them all Okay, the, uh, the covenant above all the other covenants is this new covenant, this uh, greater, better covenant, which is really the fulfillment of all these other covenants. But today, we're going to be talking about the Davidic covenant, okay? We're going to be talking about this covenant made with David. This is a big one. This is an important one. They're all big and important. One of the things that Jeff has been pointing out, which I think was really, really interesting, uh, and he did a really good job, is as the covenants go on, they become more and more focused. So this covenant made with all creation and Adam, it's for everybody. That's pretty broad. Then it narrows to Noah and his survivors. Then it narrows to Abraham. And then it narrows to Moses and the nation of Israel. Then it narrows to a specific tribe in Israel, Judah. Then it narrows to a specific person, that person being the God-man Jesus. And so that's how the covenants kind of work. They start out really broad and they narrow as they go. Uh, And so today we will be in the Davidic covenant. Now, let me catch you up on where we are in this story, okay? These other ones happen pretty close together. This Davidic covenant happens later on after a bunch of other things have happened in the Bible. The Bible, by the way, doesn't give you equal amounts of information on each part of history, right? 
So like you get all of creation, everything we would want to know when it comes to science, everything we'd want to know with the universe in two little chapters. And then you get the fall of man is in one little chapter. And then the rest of the Bible is like the solution to the fall of man. Okay? And so it's not, everything is not weighed evenly with that. And so uh, here's kind of where we are in the, uh, the story. So we talked about where we were with the people of Israel and these kind of things later on. What you eventually get in Israel is you get the, uh, w- w- the period of what is known as the judges. Okay? What are judges? Judges are these kind of military slash political leaders over Israel because they don't have a king. Okay? And so what happens is, and this is the theme of the book of Judges, that Israel ends up falling into sin or falling into captivity or being persecuted or whatever because of the Philistines or whatever it might be, because, quote, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. So the big problem in the book of Judges is the same big problem that Adam had. They will try to be like God, determining good and evil instead of trusting God. And so everybody does what's right in their own eyes. Everything becomes corrupted, but because God is faithful, he sends a deliverer, and that deliverer is called a judge. So when you think of a judge, don't think of Judge Judy with like her, uh, you know, her TV special and her gavel. That's not what we mean with the book of Judges. By Judges, we mean something like military, political leaders to help get Israel out of a bind because Israel keeps getting themselves in a bind because they're doing what's right in their own eyes. That's what a judge is, okay? So you get the period of Judges. After that, you have this uh, guy named Eli, unfaithful Eli, whose sons are supposed to be ministering, but they do not minister properly. They do uh, what they should not be doing by sticking their forks in the pot and taking the meat to themselves. Uh, and they're also sleeping with uh, the women there at the uh, tent of meeting and, uh, and these kind of things. And so then you get this guy, a prophet, a guy named Samuel, okay? You get this guy named Samuel. I'm just trying to catch you up in the Old Testament story of where we are so far. You get this guy named Samuel. Now, here's what's interesting about Samuel. Samuel is kind of the last judge and the first prophet. He's kind of the last in this lineage of judges that kind of rule over Israel, but he's also kind of the first person in this role of a prophet, one who will tell Israel specifically what, uh, what God is telling them to do. So he's an interesting character. And what you get in 1 Samuel 8 is that the people of Israel ask for a king. Okay, let me first ask this question. Is it wrong for Israel at this point to ask for a king? What do you think? Yes? No? Raise your hand if you think it's yes. Raise your hand if you think it's no. Okay, great, great. Okay, good. At least when we first started doing this class a year and a half ago, we'd be like, raise your hand if this is the case, and people would be like, and they wouldn't do anything. So you're good. If you're going to be wrong, be wrong confidently. That's what I say. Uh, the, the answer is it's not wrong for them to ask for a king. God has already promised them a king. If you go back to uh, Genesis, there's already this promise of this king coming from Judah. Additionally, humans have kind of this kingly role, right? We rule over creation. It's not wrong that Israel asked for a king. Listen, the reason that they asked for a king is what's wrong. So you people that said, yes, that's probably why you, you did that is because you realize they're not just saying, God, give us this king that you've promised. Here's what they're saying. Give us a king like the other nations so that we can trust in that king and he will deliver us from their military might, okay? So the problem is not that Israel's asking for a king. That's already been promised. I'll show you that in just a second. The problem is that Israel wants a king like the other nations so that we don't have to trust God. That's kind of what they're doing. Is it wrong for Israel to make weapons in the Old Testament? No. Is it wrong, though, when they trust their chariots and don't trust God? That's what's wrong. Okay, so the problem is not that they're asking for a king. The problem is that the reason that they ask for a king. And so the first king then becomes King Saul, who's handsome, 
all right, who's glorious, who stands, you know, ahead above all the other guys in Israel, like Tim Hollis, and he's, uh, he's kind of this first king. He's the kind of king that you would pick. He's the kind of king that humans would look, because humans look on the outside, they look on appearances, and they say, look at that guy. That's like the Brad Pitt of kings. That should be our guy. Whereas God looks at the heart. That's not how God judges things. And so uh, you get Saul. Saul's ultimately not this, uh, this king that he is made to be. He disobeys God, doesn't wait for Samuel, does this... Uh, uh, act of religion when he is not supposed to do so. He's supposed to wait for Samuel. So God takes away the kingship from Saul. And then you get King David. That's where we are today. Okay. You get King David. He is the one who's kind of the runt of the litter. He uh, is ruddy, whatever that means. It means something like reddish. He plays the harp. Uh, he hangs out with uh, the flocks and these kind of things, but he ends up becoming the king. Now, you guys know the story of uh, David and Goliath. I'm not going to tell you that story. That story is not about how the little guy can beat up on the big guy. That's not a story you read your 1A football team before their state championship. Okay? That is a story about how God's people have an enemy that they cannot defeat, that is more powerful than them, and they are going to go into slavery. And so God raises up an anointed Messiah king and slays that giant by his might, not by the strength of that stone or something like that, and delivers God's people. That's the point of that story. It's a prefigurement of Christ. Now, let's talk about kingdom stuff and Israel. First, I want you to see this. This is Genesis 49, 8 through 10. Okay? Uh, I want you to see this because I want you to realize that God's intent was that there would be a king for humanity that would ultimately culminate in Christ, but I want you to see it here. This is when these blessings are going out to these different uh, sons uh, uh, of Israel. Genesis 49, 8 through 10 says this of Judah, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son. You have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Now look at this last part in verse 10. I've put it in italics just so you see. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Okay. So what's weird is as you have these different kind of blessings and prophecies, if you will, made of these different tribes of Israel, they have different jobs. Okay? They do different things. And it's Judah that will specifically be this kingly line. It's Judah that it says that the scepter won't depart from them. Other people, Levi, they'll be the priest. They have a different job. But with Judah, this will be the kingly line. Okay? My son is named Judah because of this. This is the tribe that Christ comes from. Why? Because he's the king. That's really, really important. Okay? One of the things that's interesting is, uh, Jeff mentioned this when we talk about the intertestamental period. In between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you had this period of uh, the rule of the Maccabees, a guy named Judas Maccabeus, the hammer, and you have these kind of people. Uh, what they do is they rebel against the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. They rebel against these pagan rulers that are ruling over them. But one of the bad things that they do is they combine the priestly office and the kingly office. They combine who is making, uh, who's in charge of political things versus who's in charge of cultic worship and the religious things. By the way, when I say cultic, I don't mean like belonging to a cult. Sometimes the word cultic is used in, in Old Testament theology to talk about uh, the religious prescriptions that Israel had. Uh, and so they end up combining them, but that's not the way it's supposed to be in the Bible. Those are supposed to be separate offices. But here you get this idea that there will be a king that's going to come from Judah. And guess who's going to submit to him? Notice in this text, it's not just Israel or something like this. All people. All people will submit to this king that's going to come from the line of Judah, okay? You with me so far? Because now we're about to do a bunch of reading. I hope you're literate because here we go. 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 13. This, this is the promise uh, that is made to David. It's repeated several times in the Bible. The big four is 2 Samuel 7, 
First Chronicles 17, Psalm 89, and Isaiah 55. There are other places in the Bible where this covenant is hinted at, but I want to, these are the, the four biggest places where this promise made to David is mentioned in the Old Testament. So I want to read these passages here for you. Second Samuel, I think I'm only reading three of them, yeah. Second Samuel 7, 8 through 13 says this, okay, this is the promise that's made. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. Prince there just means leader. Don't, don't get too caught up with what's the difference between a prince and a king. Jesus is the prince of peace. He's also the king of peace. Those terms are used synonymously. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay? So in context, King David is like, God, I want to build a house for you. And God's like, well, one, I'm everywhere, so yeah, I mean... Uh, yeah, I get a kind of a house, but you need to realize I'm bigger than your house. But two, you're not going to be the guy that's going to build me a house. In fact, I'm going to build a house for you. God kind of flips it, and he says, I'm going to give you a dynasty. Uh, the reason God won't allow David, by the way, to build a house is because David has hands full of blood, meaning he's killed a bunch of people. Psalm 89, 3 through 4. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Selah. Okay. There's, again, a reiteration of this promise that's mentioned in Psalm 89 that God promises David that he will have a king that will always be on the throne. Psalm 89, 19 through 37. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted uh, one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant with my whole, uh, I'm sorry, I have found David my servant with my holy oil I have anointed him so that I may hand, <clears throat> let's start over. Let's just start over. <clears throat> Once upon a time, there was God and Psalm 89, 19 through 37. Of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil. I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. Uh, a horn, by the way, is seen as a symbol of strength, like, it, like an ox would have a horn, so keep that in mind when he talks about the horn there. Uh, I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of heaven. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commands, then I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. Now look at verse 33. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Selah. 
Okay? Now, I'm not going to read the other ones. I mentioned other places where you can look at this uh, covenant. It's mentioned again in 1 Chronicles 17. It's recapped. It's prophesied about in Isaiah 55, but I wanted to read those ones because those are the biggest ones that make it so clear. So, I want to mention one thing before I talk about what these promises are here. Now, look up again here in this psalm, in Psalm 89. Look at verse 20. Okay? It mentions David being anointed with oil. Let me explain why that's important. If someone's going to become a king today, how do they become a king? What do they do? What ceremony do they have? They have a coronation, right? You guys have seen The Crown or some sort of show like this. They have to come up. They're dressed in all their robe. Typically, a religious figure, a bishop or the pope or whoever, will take that, that crown and will put it on that king's head, and that's how they become the king. That's the ceremony. It's called a coronation. The reason that a bishop puts the crown on their head is because they're saying, one, that the church is over the state, but two, they're saying this is a divine right given by God. God selects who's in power. That doesn't mean whoever's in power is good or making good decisions, but it does mean that nothing happens outside of God's sovereign command. One of the things that was interesting with Napoleon, when Napoleon was crowned king, he actually walked up to the bishop and took the crown out of his hands and put it on his own head, interestingly enough. What you have in Israel, though, as a part of a coronation, is you have this idea of anointing with oil. That's not something we really do today. That's kind of their coronation. Anointing with oil is this this thing where they would take a horn of oil. What does that mean? It's a hollowed-out animal's horn that has oil in it, and they would pour it on your head. And the idea was that God's Spirit would come and empower you for that office, okay? Oil and the Spirit are kind of used interchangeably in the Old Testament. And so the three kinds of people you would anoint were prophets, priests, and kings. Jesus is all those, by the way. But here you have this idea of David being anointed, that he has this ritual of oil placed on his head, that he is this uh, one chosen by God to lead. That's actually what the term Messiah means, okay? If you've ever wondered, what does Messiah mean? It comes from the Hebrew Mashiach. You got to do the little ch at the end, little chait, uh, Mashiach, and it means anointed one, meaning king, okay? Or Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, okay? and that means the same thing, anointed one, king. So when you read Jesus Christ, don't think, ah, oh, that's like Mr. Christ. That's like his last name. Like he gets letters to his mailbox, and it's like Mr. Christ Esquire or something like that. That's not the idea. It's a title. It means king. It means Jesus the king, all right? Or Jesus the Messiah means Jesus the king. Messiah, Christos, king, selected by God to rule one, those are all synonymous, okay? Those are all synonymous, but that's the idea of anointing there in uh, verse 20. Now, what are the promises that are made in these passages? Okay, there's a few of them. I've mentioned three of them that are made during David's lifetime, and I've mentioned three of them that will extend beyond David's lifetime. So here are the promises. Again, I'm I'm talking a lot, but I guess that's the point of this because I'm teaching a class. But what I mean is I'm talking really fast, Okay? I'm talking really fast. So, just to, just to recap where we are. God makes covenants with mankind at different parts in redemptive history. We've seen the covenant he's made with creation, Noah, Abraham, and Israel, and Moses, and these kind of things. Now, what is the promise that he makes to David? What is the promise he makes to David? Let me give you three during his lifetime. The first is he promises him a great name. He promises him fame. He promises him reputation. You will see Israel grow under David and then under Solomon to unprecedented heights. You'll see them conquer over their enemies. You'll see David be successful in military ventures uh, over his enemies. He's saying, you will have more Twitter followers than Justin Bieber. Your name will be great. People will know who you are. And that's true. From Israel's history, they trace a lot of this stuff back to King David. They have a star of David on their flag in Israel today and these kind of things. A lot of their kids are named David. David is seen as this primo king, military fighter guy, and his name is great, okay? 
Next, he's promised rest and protection from his enemies, and that's generally the case. There are times where Israel has to fight battles and stuff under King David, but they're typically successful. It's, it's seen as kind of this Pax Romana. It's kind of seen as this uh, period of rest and peace and these kind of things that are going on in Israel because God has promised him these blessings. You're my chosen king, so under your rule, things will go well. Let's back up and talk theology. Why do we push the idea of the kingdom of God so much? Why, when we talk about the gospel, do we always talk about the kingdom of God? One, that's the way the Bible talks about it. But two, this is the idea. When you have a good leader, things go well. When you have a bad leader, things go poorly. Don't believe me? Move to North Korea and tell me how you like it, okay? That's how it works. The reason people get so fired up with politics, regardless of what side you're on, is because if you get a bad leader, things go badly, and if you get a good leader, things go well, okay? Now, that's ingrained into us because God is the best leader. When everything is happening in, uh, in Eden, everything is perfect because God is a good ruler. And that's our hope is that one day we'll be back to Eden only better. The garden has become a city. And so this idea is that God is a good ruler. Whoever your ruler is is really important because it affects everything else. When Israel has bad kings, they fall into idolatry and their sexual morality and they're getting attacked by their enemies, eventually get exiled. When they have good kings like David, things go well. What then does it look like if the entire world would be under a perfect King Jesus? It would look like the end of Revelation where there's neither crying nor weeping nor pain anymore and everything is good, okay? But there's this promise that they will have rest and protection from their enemies. They will have, in a sense, a continual Sabbath under, uh, under David where they have rest and peace and joy. They're able to sing their songs and eat their bread and drink their wine and things are good. And then also, there's the continued promise of land, uh, the land of Israel. The same thing that was promised to Abraham, you have that as well. The kingdom of Israel will be established, and it will continue to go forth, okay? Now, after David's lifetime, you have three things promised, okay? The first is a dynasty. The first is a dynasty. That's really the important part of this promise. It's not just that King David, you'll be a super great king. It's that you will never fail to be king through your descendants. That's kind of the idea. That not just will you be king, and I'll bless your kingdom, but you will have kids, and they 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 will have kids, and you will never fail to have a man on the throne eternally. So if you're David, you're kind of like, I guess we'll just keep having kids for a long time. You don't quite understand what that's going to mean. We just saw that in Psalm 89, that it won't pass away from before God's eyes. It'll be like the sun. It's just always going on. All right? It'll be like the S-U-N, the sun. It's always going on. And so there's this promise, though, that you will have a dynasty. David says, God, let me build you a house. And God says, I think you've gotten the gospel backwards. I do stuff for you. It's the other way around. How about I build you a house? How about I build you a house? Meaning a dynasty, okay? Let me, let me make your name great. Let me give you a bunch of descendants. You will never fail to have a man on the throne. There's a promise of kingdom, okay? We talked about this. There's a sense in which humans are made to be kind of kings because we rule over the earth. Uh, Israel was to be a kingdom of priests, a priestly kingdom or a kingly priestdom. There's this idea with David that he's again promised a kingdom, okay? He's promised rule. He's promised authority. And here's what I love. Even if his descendants are unfaithful, that's what I love. The text says, if you have sons and they're wicked, I'll discipline them, but I'm not going to get rid of my promise because I'm God. And when I swear things, I keep my word. I swear to me, I swear to me that I'm going to keep my word, okay? That's what God is saying. And so there's this promise that even if some of his descendants are unfaithful, God will still be faithful. Even if some of them are unfaithful, there will be one who comes who gets to reign on the throne forever who's ultimately faithful, and that's Christ, okay? That's very clearly Christ. He's the anointed one. He's of the tribe of Judah. He's the one in David's line. He's the one that though there were previous kings before him in Judah that were wicked, he will not be wicked, okay? 
And then lastly, there will be an eternal king, capital K, on the throne. The kind of language that's used in Psalm 89 seems to stretch beyond the limits of someone who's merely human. Yes, Jesus is truly human, just like you and me, minus sin. But he's also the God-man. He also is the eternal second person of the Trinity, okay? Fully God, fully man, one person. And so, uh, and so you have this, uh, this kind of hint that uh, this king that's going to rule on the throne is actually going to be greater than David. He's going to rule longer than David. He's going to be better than David. Those, that, that language is kind of hinted at specifically there in Psalm 89. Okay? Now, let's talk about the role of the kingdom of Israel. We've said this here several times at Parkway. I want to say it again. Israel was never just about Israel. Okay? So when you go back to the Old Testament and you read that God promises Israel to the Jews... If that's where your reading stops, you've misunderstood something. Because we just read in the sermon last week that I preached on that Paul says that the promise to uh, Abraham is that he would inherit the whole world. Not that he would inherit just a strip of land from the Jordan to the the Mediterranean or something like this, but that he would inherit the whole world. That's what Paul says the promise was to, uh, to Abraham. And so Israel was never meant to just be about Israel, but rather this. We've said this several times. I want to say it again because I think it's important. That God's plan was that the whole world would one day look like Israel which was to have looked like Jerusalem, where the temple was, which was to look like the temple, which was to look like Eden. That's why the temple has all the pomegranates and angels and these kind of things carved into it. It's supposed to look like Eden, which was to look like heaven. Okay, That's God's plan, that as heaven looks, so looked Eden. As Eden looked, so looks the temple and the tabernacle. As the tabernacle looks, so looks Jerusalem, where the temple is. As Jerusalem looks, so looks Israel. As Israel looks, so looks the whole world. God's hope is that heaven would be on earth. That's the idea. Okay? So that's the first thing that you need to see here, was that Israel was meant to be a microcosm of the kingdom of God. Israel was supposed to be a little sampling, a little appetizer of what the kingdom of God on earth would look like. When you were in Israel, it was supposed to look different than the other nations. You're supposed to be in Assyria, and Assyria is the worst, and they're pagan, and they're sexually immoral, and they're awful, but you're headed down to the beach in the Mediterranean, so you walk through Israel, and you're like, these people are so holy. They so care about their God. They have this law. Think about how much their God loves them. He gave them their law. We don't know what our God wants. We're pagans. We just sacrifice kids and stuff when it's not raining. But their God was kind, so he gave them their law. Look at this temple. It's so big and shiny. There's no idols in it, though. Why are there no idols? Everywhere else where there's a temple in the world, there's idols. What? Their God's invisible? He's everywhere. He's all-powerful. He's the God of all nations. That's ridiculous because, in my view, gods just kind of rule over different territories. They just rule over different areas. And you were supposed to see that there was something different about Israel. You're supposed to see that Israel was meant to be a little appetizer of the kingdom of God. It's supposed to be what living under God's reign was supposed to look like, but not in perfect form. Why? Because the Jews are still sinners like the rest of us, and so it was still imperfect. Number two, Israel was to be a light to the pagan nations, okay? We in the New Testament have a ministry that is more go and tell. Go to the nations, share with them the gospel, tell people about Jesus, In the Old Testament, you did have some Jewish proselytizing. You did have some Jewish evangelism, but it was somewhat rare. Israel was more of a come-and-see religion. Come and see what it's like in Israel because Israel was a theocracy. It was this thing where the political and the religious and the ceremonial and the civil and the social were all intertwined. To be a Jew meant you took on all the aspects of the law. You lived in Israel. You followed the rules. You submitted to the king. You did the rituals. You did all these kind of things. They were to be a light to the nations. Israel was to look different than the pagan nations. They were to look differently ceremonially. Okay, So they had certain washings they had to do. They had circumcision. They had times where you were unclean and times where you were clean, and all of that was meant to be a light to the nations where they say, whoever these Israelites worship must be really, 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 really holy because it seems like all they do is spend their time trying to be holy. 
Okay, that was the idea. So you had what was ceremonial. You had uh, moral rules that Israel was not to be like the other nations. They were to walk in holiness. In fact, a lot of our civil rules uh, in modern countries, in Western countries, so whether it's Germany, France, uh, England, the U.S., whatever it is, a lot of these kind of rules are taken from places in the Old Testament. There's something about the moral law in the Old Testament that is just inherently just, that the punishment should fit the crime. It's not like in Islamic countries where you steal an apple and you get your hand chopped off. That punishment is too strong for the crime. The punishment should fit the crime. Or uh, sexual immorality. Who in here is married to your sister? Why not? Because it's gross. Also, because the Old Testament kind of lays out who you can marry and who you can't marry. And there can't be this weird, these weird incestuous ties and these kind of things. The Bible will lay out when you can murder and, which is never, you can never murder. It lays out that you can't murder, but other times where you can righteously kill, right? So when you're going to war or there's this command in the Old Testament where if somebody breaks into your house in the day, you're not to kill them because they could just run out. But if it's at night and you strike them down, the blood guiltiness is not on your hands because you didn't, you didn't know. You don't know if they're there to attack you or hurt you or what. And so there's all this wisdom that's there and that Judeo-Christian worldview kind of uh, ends up seeping over into secular culture in the West. Uh, but there was meant to be this idea that there's some something about when you read these commands, there's something that rings out in your heart that those things are true. It's good not to commit adultery. It's good not to murder. It's good not to steal. It's good to honor your parents, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Israel is supposed to look different than the other nations there. If anyone wants to tweet out that I said, here are the times the Bible says you can murder, please just don't do that instead. Uh, Israel was to rule justly, so there was supposed to be a civil righteousness about them. We'll talk about that in just a second, what the king was supposed to do. There's a civil righteousness about them. And then Israel was at the center of the world and a land bridge to the major world powers. This is going to be excellent because I'm going to draw something that's real bad. You ready for this? You ready for a geographical map? This is going to be excellent. Here's Israel. Okay? Egypt's down here. You have Syria slash Assyria up here. You have Babylon. Just put a big B and circle it over here. Here's the sea. Here's Israel. Israel forms a land bridge to all these other major world powers. So if I'm trying to travel to Assyria or I'm trying to travel to Egypt or I'm trying to go from Egypt to Assyria or I'm trying to do these other things, I have to go through Israel. Israel is, in ancient Near Eastern thinking, the center of the world, okay? It's the uh, Ellis Island. It's the place where you have to go through to get anywhere else. You want to get to the water? You go through Israel. You want to connect to one of these other major world powers? You go through Israel. Uh, They don't know that they're... And these kind of things yet. Did my mic cut out? They don't know about those kind of things yet. And so what you have is the major world powers go through Israel. It's seen as the center of the world. It is the belly button of the known earth in the ancient world. Okay? Number three. Israel was to be a kingdom of priests. We talked about this a lot, so I won't mention it. I just want to mention it briefly. I won't spend a lot of time elaborating on it. Israel was to be a kingdom of priests. You have holiness codes in the Mosaic law. Notice, though, okay, so let me just put it in some ancient Near Eastern context. If you lived in an other ancient Near Eastern culture, so you were from Assyria or you were from Moab or you were from Philistia, you were from one of these other places, typically the average person would just be kind of pagan. They'd sleep around. If they got mad at somebody, they'd hold grudges. They'd be really foul and crass. But the priests were supposed to be especially holy, okay? What's interesting in the Old Testament is, yes, you do have a class of priests, the Levites, and they they are the only ones that are supposed to be priests. But there is a priestliness about everyone else, that everyone's supposed to walk in righteousness. Everyone's supposed to be blameless, whether they're a priest or not. The same kind of thing applies in the New Testament. When you get the rules for the qualifications of an elder at a local church, okay, Those are not just qualifications for an elder. 
It's not as though you're allowed to be a drunkard, but they're not. You're allowed to be thought poorly of by outsiders, but they're not. You're allowed to have a bunch of wives, but they're not. That's not the point. The idea is those are not just qualifications for elders. Those are qualifications for Christians. And if you can't meet those qualifications as a Christian, you can't be an elder. That's the idea. So both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, though there are certain people in professional ministry, the requirements to be holy is on all God's people. Okay? That's kind of what I'm saying. So you had that in the Old Testament. They were holy. And all of, all of worship and daily life centered around worshiping God. That was everything in Israel. That's why you celebrated holidays. That's why you remembered Passover and these kind of things. That's why you went to the temple. That's how you conducted business. That's why you didn't use dishonest scales. Everything was consumed with worshiping properly the true God of Israel. Okay? And then number four, I want to mention this. Israel was to be, I'm sorry, I just said that. The king was to model God's rule to the people of Israel. Okay? He was to trust God and not get distracted and he was to be an absolute expert in Bible, okay? Let me show you this passage here. I love this. This is what the king is supposed to do. Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20. Look at this. This is the the job of the king. This isn't just the job of a priest or a scribe or somebody who's especially concerned with holiness. This is the king's job, ready? And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, meaning he won't add to it or take from it, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Okay? So this is what the text is saying. What is the role of the king of Israel? Ready? It's to be a Bible expert. It's for him to make his own copy of the Bible and study it every day. Okay? Now, that's really important. There is a lot of talk in evangelicalism of Christian leadership. There are conferences on Christian leadership, and guys will talk about leadership and how this is all important. And what they think leadership means is find the most recent business guru, learn his practices, apply it to your church so your church can get a bunch of people, though nobody's actually discipled. That's all of evangelicalism right now, okay? Here's how the Bible defines good leadership. Knowing the Bible. If you know the Bible, you'll know what to do with everything else. You'll know what to do in shepherding people. You'll know what to do in discipling people. You'll know how to handle issues. You'll know how to handle marital conflict. Isn't that interesting that the requirement that God gives for the king over a nation, even over civil affairs, is know the Bible, know the Bible, know the Bible, know the Bible, know the Bible. You cannot be a good leader without knowing the Bible? Or how else will you know if those other leadership principles are even biblical? It starts with Scripture. If you want to be a good Christian leader, stop having conferences on leadership and have conferences on theology. Have conferences on Bible. Talk about things God cares about, okay? The church is not a business. The church is Jesus' bride, and he wants it run a little bit differently. Let's talk about the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, okay? So we spent all this time talking about ancient Near Eastern stuff. We talked all this time talking about David and all these kind of things. Let's talk about the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant because here's what you get. You get King David. He's pretty good minus the whole uh, sees a girl taking a Bathsheba and adultery kills Uriah, etc. right? He does this kind of weird peeping Tom thing, as Tim says. And uh, other than that, he's a man after God's own heart. You'd hate to think what he would be like if he wasn't a man after God's own heart. Uh, but then his son, Solomon, he's the one that gets to build the temple. Though he ends up going astray at the end of his life, he uh, has a a taste for the ladies, and so he acquires a thousand of them, which, by the way, is like getting married every day for three years. 
Uh, and so he has that. They lead him astray because that wasn't God's original intention and design. The original intention and design of God with Adam and Eve was one man and one woman. Jesus will clarify that in the New Testament. They lead him astray, and he falls into idolatry. And then after that, you do get a few good kings of Israel. So if you look through the kings of, uh, I'm sorry, you do get a good, few good kings of Judah. Israel and Judah will end up separating his kingdoms. Israel will have pretty much only bad kings. Judah will have a few good kings. But ultimately, the majority of them are still bad. Most of those kings fall short of what David was made to be. But the promise that we've just seen in the Davidic covenant is that one is coming after David who will sit on his throne forever, who will be the better David, the David with a capital D, the David that David should have been, and that's Christ. Let me point out a few passages this occurs in the New Testament, okay? Luke one thirty two, talking about Christ. Look at this language. It says this. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, who? David. Okay, it's important that Jesus doesn't just come from uh, the tribe of Benjamin, or he doesn't come from the tribe of uh, Levi or something like this. He comes from the tribe of Judah. That's why I named my son Judah, is because of this idea. Uh, He will be this king. What Luke is saying is that that promise made to David, that by that time in the first century, the Jews would have been doubting. They would have been like, Man, whatever that promise is, is probably not happening because we see a lot of bad rulers and right now Rome is ruling over us. Luke is saying, no, 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 there's still hope. There's one coming in David's line who will rule over everything. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me after his resurrection. That's what he says. Hey, I'm in charge of everything. Remember that promise made to David that all, or I'm sorry, remember that promise made to Judah that all the inhabitants of the earth would submit to him? Remember that promise made to David that he'd rule over everything? I'm fulfilling that. Acts 2, 29 through 36. When they preach about Jesus in the book of Acts, they preach about him being a king. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did, he, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, meaning my Lord, Jesus said to my Lord, God the Father, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all, I'm sorry, let me read 34 again and then explain what I actually meant. I do this a lot. Jeff makes fun of me a lot when I trip over my words. For David did uh, There's this promise that there will be a king forever. He's saying it's not David, okay? For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Meaning God the Father is saying to God the Son, Jesus, sit at my right hand, this position of honor. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. What does that term Christ mean? Anointed one, king like David, Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. So here, not only do you have Jesus given this title of divinity, being called Lord, but what, uh, what's being said in the sermon there in Acts 2 is this promise made to David can't culminate in David because David's buried. We know where his tomb is. Rather, it's in one who's been exalted to the heavens, being Christ. Okay? Hebrews 1.8, speaking of uh, Jesus, it says this, but of the Son, he says, your throne, what's the next phrase? Oh, God. Here's another place where Jesus is directly called God. Okay? But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom, okay? 
Notice, there's, there's this, this throne that was promised to David that would last forever is said to happen here in Christ, who is also called God. Revelation 11.15, listen to this language about Jesus. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And these are just some verses. I just had to pick some of them just to give you an example. The New Testament is full of this. In fact, this is the central Christian claim. Out of all the things we believe, what is the central Christian claim in the New Testament? The central Christian claim is that Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? Yes, that means he's God. Yes, amen, he's the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God. But in context, most often it simply means he's Messiah. He's Messiah. The question is not, do you believe in Jesus, meaning just a man who existed? The question is, is Jesus the Christ? Is he the Messiah? Is he Lord? Is he the one in the line of David? That's what the New Testament is talking about over and over and over again. The kind of language where he is called, you know, uh, the blind man will call out and say things like, son of, Je- son of David, have mercy on me. All right, these kind of things, or son of Jesse, uh, that kind of language used of Jesus all the time in the New Testament. So let me end by pointing out a few ways where Jesus is seen as kind of the greater David, and then I'm going to have Jeff come up here, and we will do a little bit of Q&A, okay? First of all, David is from the tribe of Judah, and Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, okay? That's important. When you're going through the genealogy, I don't know if you've ever tried to start reading through the New Testament. So you open up to the New Testament, you're like, I'm fired up for God. I just got back from youth camp. I'm going to read the whole Bible tonight. And you open up to Matthew, and you're hit with the genealogy. And you're like, ugh. It kind of takes the spiritual wind out of your sails. You're like, this guy was the son of this guy. I don't know who that is. This guy was the son of this guy. I don't know who that is. That genealogy is super important because if you're going to follow the Messiah and you're going to worship a guy and devote your entire life to him, he's got to be the right guy, okay? So that, that genealogy is important because it's going to show that Jesus is of the line of Abraham, that's important. It's going to show that he's of the line of Judah. That's important because he's the king. It's going to show that there are Gentiles in his line, which means God is not just about saving Jews. He's about saving the whole world, etc. And so one of the things that you're going to see in that lineage is that Jesus comes from David. He comes from the tribe of Judah. That's super important because it's this promise that out of this tribe of Judah, there will be a king. And from this lineage of David, there'll be one who always sits on the throne. Number two, David fought a powerful enemy, Goliath, that Israel couldn't conquer so God's people could have rest in the promised land. Jesus fought a powerful enemy, Satan, that we couldn't conquer so that we could have eternal rest. Again, the Old Testament stories are not just about random children's facts for kids, okay? Who was it that made an axe head float or something like that? That's not the point. The point of those stories is always to point to Christ. Moses isn't about Moses. It's about a prophet greater than Moses. David isn't about David. It's about a king greater than David. Abraham isn't about Abraham, it's about one whose followers would outnumber the stars in the sky, being Jesus, okay? He is the greater Abraham, the greater Moses, the greater Adam, the greater David, etc., okay, etc. Number three, when David was tempted by Bathsheba, he failed. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he succeeded. Jesus' wilderness temptation is a fascinating story in the Gospels that most pastors skip over too quickly. When I've heard that passage taught, most pastors do this. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, and he uses Scripture to fight the devil, so when you're tempted, you can use Scripture to fight the devil too, okay? That's true, absolutely true. You can use Scripture when you're being tempted. You can use Scripture in spiritual warfare. Not the point of Jesus' wilderness temptation. The point of Jesus' wilderness temptation is he is going to feel the full weight of temptation like we feel, but he is going to be successful where we have failed. When Adam was tempted, Adam failed. When Jesus is tempted, he succeeded. When Israel was tempted to worship false gods, to trust the manna, the bread, instead of God, to, uh, you know, et cetera, when they failed in the wilderness, which they were in for 40 years, 
When Jesus is in the wilderness for, wait for it, 40 days, going, undergoing the same temptations, the temptation to worship the devil, false gods, the temptation to test God, jump off the, uh, the you know, pinnacle of the temple, uh, and to trust the bread instead of God, to trust the man instead of God, Jesus is, is successful. He's succeeding where Israel has failed. And in the case of temptation, where David failed, Jesus was successful. David, when he was tempted, did the things a king should not do. Jesus, when he's tempted, does the things a king should do. And how does Jesus resist the enemy? He does resist the enemy by trusting the truths of God's Word because the king was supposed to know the Bible. The king was supposed to know God's Word inside and out. And because Jesus does that, he's able to resist the enemy's lies and temptations by quoting things like Deuteronomy. If the devil showed up in visible form, could you fight him by your knowledge of Deuteronomy? Okay. Number four, Jesus was anointed as king over Israel. Jesus was anointed as king over the whole world at his baptism. That's what Jesus' baptism is seen as, okay? Jesus gets baptized not because he needs to be baptized, just for the same reason that Jesus offers sacrifices, though he doesn't need to offer sacrifices. He's fulfilling all righteousness. He's living the life we should have lived, and because we should be baptized, that's what he's doing. He's identifying himself with this repentant kingdom of God community, and his baptism is seen as his anointing, okay? So in the Old Testament, they would take that horn of oil and they'd pour it on your head, and that's what would make you king. When Jesus comes up out of the water, the Spirit descends on him like a dove, and the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, okay? You have this anointing at his baptism. That's what's going on at Jesus' baptism. It's not just meant to be a, you know, example for us or something like that. It's something very unique. It's his Davidic uh, oil poured on his head, if you want to say it that way. Number five, David failed to be faithful to God's word and disobeyed God's law. Jesus studied God's law and obeyed it perfectly, okay? Uh, Jesus, uh, remember, the new covenant doesn't start in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The new covenant starts after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is still under the old covenant, and because of that, he must keep these laws. He must keep these rules on our behalf. We have failed to keep God's law. Israel has failed to keep God's law. There must be one who keeps it, so Jesus does these things correctly, he keeps the purity laws. He keeps these rituals. He walks in righteousness. He, uh, he does these kind of things, okay? By the way, this is the reason why you don't have to think that God's mad at you when you fail, and you don't have to think that God uh, would be happier with you if you'd be more obedient because you're already seen as 100% righteous in Christ. He has kept all those laws, and if you're in Christ, it's like you kept all those laws, okay? Number six, Israel flourished under David's leadership. The whole world will one day flourish because of Jesus' leadership, okay? Israel, David is a good king, and because of that, things go well in Israel. He fails some, but generally things go well. Israel is, is expanding. They're pushing back their enemies. They're fighting off the Philistines, et cetera, et cetera. The hope in the Bible is because Jesus rules over everything that one day the whole world again will look like Eden, that the, the world will look like Israel was made to look, that the world will be perfect, and he will conquer his enemies and crush them and these kind of things. That's the hope. And then lastly, and Jeff, if you want to go ahead and come on up here. Lastly, number seven, David was a man after God's own heart. Jesus is God himself and was eternally in a loving relationship with the Father. If you look at John 1.18, it'll talk about, if you look at all of just actually John 1, it'll talk about Jesus eternally being in the bosom of the Father and being with the Father. Because God is a trinity, uh, Jesus is more than just a man after God's own heart. Uh, Jesus is God. He's the one loved by the Father. And so you see these kind of analogies linked through from the life of David to the life of Christ. Jeffrey, come up here and let's do some Q&A.